I'm John. And I'm John. We're classically trained conductors who are also working theater music directors. Each week, we'll tell you a little bit about shows we enjoy and why you should check them out if you haven't yet. This is Musical Minutes with John and John. Hello, all, and welcome back to Musical Minutes with John and John. As always, I'm John. And I'm John's sister, Kristen. I'm Kristen. This week, we are joined by Philadelphia actress and my sister, Kristen Noreen. She is a trained musical theater performer with a BFA from the University of the Arts in Philadelphia. She has performed with various local theaters in the Philadelphia area and was part of two Barrymore-nominated shows, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat for Best Ensemble and Time is on Our Side for Best Overall Production. She currently lives in Philadelphia with her husband, David, her daughter, Robin, and her cat, Squirrel. So, hi, Kristen. Hi, John. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. Uh, you know, just the usual. Uh, we're about to actually get a series of snowstorms here, so that's always interesting <laughs> in Texas. <laughs> So is it like the snowpocalypse right now? Everyone's like prepping for doomsday. There is not a loaf of bread to be found anywhere. It's the only thing you can eat to survive a snowstorm. Basically, yeah. yeah bread and bread. And bottled water. That's yep. it. Yeah. End of anything lift. else is off the off the <laughs> off the table. Okay. So this week we are going to talk about My Fair Lady with music by Frederick Lowe. Lyrics and book by Alan J. Lerner, based on the play Pygmalion by George Bernard Shaw. My Fair Lady opened on March 15, 1956, at the Mark Hellinger Theater and played 2,717 performances before closing on September 29, 1962. During that time, it transferred to the Broadhurst Theater in February 1962 and the Broadway Theater in April 1962. My Fair Lady was directed by Moss Hart, with music direction by Franz Allers, and choreography by Hanya Holm. The original cast included Julie Andrews as Eliza Doolittle, Rex Harrison as Henry Higgins, Stanley Holloway as Alfred Doolittle, and Robert Coote as Hugh Pickering. My Fair Lady was nominated for 10 Tony Awards and won six, including Best Musical, Leading Actor, sorry, Julie, uh, Direction, and Music Direction. Act One opens with phonetician Henry Higgins being accosted by the Cockney flower seller Eliza Doolittle, who is pushing her wares on the professor. He laments the vulgarity of her lowbrow accent before encountering fellow linguist Colonel Hugh Pickering, who Henry invites back to his house for a time as a house guest. The two leave, and Eliza sings about her dreams of living a comfortable, highbrow life. The next morning, Eliza runs into her scheming father before heading to Professor Higgins' house to ask for elocution lessons so that she can procure a job in an actual florist shop. Intrigued, Higgins pet intrigued, Higgins bets Pickering that he can teach Eliza to speak so properly within six months that she can be passed off as a proper lady. As time passes, Eliza is seen undergoing brutal lessons on elocution with Professor Higgins. Eliza begins to daydream on various ways to murder the <laughs> professor, and his house staff notices the rising tension. 
Lesson after lesson passes, and Henry begins to lose hope. Suddenly, Eliza has a breakthrough when she perfectly recites one of her lessons in a proper English accent. She's so elated that she cannot even sleep. As a first public test, Professor Higgins takes Eliza to a horse race, where she is at first successful in convincing everyone that she is a high-born lady, but shocks everyone when she reverts to her natural vocabulary when cheering on her horse. While most are scandalized, she does catch the attention of Freddie Einsford Hill, who is immediately smitten by Eliza. Some weeks later, Henry takes Eliza to an embassy ball as a final test. She passes with flying colors and Act One ends as Eliza is invited to dance with the Transylvanian prince at the ball. Act Two opens back in Henry's house where Henry and Pickering are celebrating their triumph, but neglect to include Eliza in their celebrations. Incensed, Eliza packs up and leaves, but runs into Freddy outside. He begins to express his love for her, but she tells him that she's heard enough idle talk. If he really loves her, he needs to show her. The two return to her old home, but Eliza no longer feels like the area is her home. Eliza then runs into her father again, who has had a mysterious bequest from an American millionaire and is now firmly in the middle class. He's out celebrating his fortunes before heading to a church to marry his paramour. Back at Henry's house, the professor finds himself beginning to miss Eliza, but he chalks it up to confusion over her leaving and notes that men are inherently superior to women as such. This is enough to drive Colonel Pickering away, leaving Henry alone in his house. Henry then goes to visit his mother, where he encounters Eliza, who felt that she had no other place to go. Still proud, Eliza declares that she doesn't need Henry. Despondent, Henry walks home and laments his lost relationship with Eliza, whom he now realizes he's grown attached, maybe even accustomed to, hmm? He returns home and plays a recording from one of their first lessons, but now hearing his own harsh words and tone, Eliza appears out of nowhere, and Henry contains his joy at her return by asking, Eliza, where the devil are my slippers? Before going to sleep. That's it. That's how it ends. That's, you know, and actually that's one of the first things I'd like to talk about is the ending. Um, As we were prepping for the show, you know, I were talking about it a little bit. And I made the comment that the show doesn't really end as much as it just kind of, well, stops. (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. It, I think the, the writers, uh, uh, particularly Alan J. Lerner, who wrote the lyrics in libretto, I think he got to it and he's like, well, I wanted her to come back. And so she came back and that's it. I don't have to explain why or create any justification. She came back. The end. Everyone go home now. And it's actually kind of interesting because the ending of My Fair Lady, as we mentioned in the rundown, the show is based on the play Pygmalion by Mm. uh, George Bernard Shaw. The ending is actually different from the source material. Yes, yes. Uh, G.B. Shaw has at the end that Eliza leaves and... Uh, Henry is left alone and that's where that ends and in fact he wrote a sequel 
uh, explaining how, or an epilogue, explaining how Eliza does not go back to Henry. They do not get married because everybody really wanted that. They wanted that satisfying ending. Um, and he was very much against it. But what I do think is interesting is he does, uh, G.B. Shaw in that epilogue says, you know, they don't end up together romantically, but he is open to the possibility that they need each other or um, that they do belong in each other's lives. And I think that Alan J. Lerner picked up on that. I think he sort of took that and ran with it. He decided he thought that ending was wrong and that Eliza should come back and that these two people should end up in their lives, whether it's romantic or not. Um, I personally don't think it's romantic, but I do know that you can interpret it either way. Well, and the ending does end up very ambiguous yeah. as a result. So we have Eliza who returns out of nowhere. We have this moment of realization on the on uh, Henry's part as he realizes that, you know, maybe she wasn't just a educational conquest. Mm -hmm. Maybe she wasn't just this, this task for him to overcome, but that he's maybe possibly starting to have the beginnings of this idea of her worth as a person, but then it ends. And so we never actually get that resolution. And maybe the ambiguity is for the best. I agree with you that there's no romantic connotation here for mm -hmm. me personally i feel like she comes back there maybe is a sense that the two have become kindred spirits in a sense but i don't know it just it ends up feeling a little unfinished to me yeah and and i think that any actor who plays eliza has a really hard task of finding that motivation where it, it might be something that the audience never really knows. Uh, but I do think that it, it you're building to it throughout the entire run of the show. And, you know, we have Eliza who she, she has this, this great song um, without you, or she's telling him off. And to be fair, I do think that she is still sort of, pumping herself up in that song as well that that song is not like i have decided i can do this without you that song is really like uh i i'm gonna i'm gonna fake it till i make it i'm gonna say that i can do this without you uh because there are a few lines where she says um i will not feel alone without you i can stand on my own without you and i'm like mm, i don't know eliza those seem pretty personal uh <laughs> i think you're protesting a little too much uh but she she does feel close to him. She wants his approval. She wants him to acknowledge that they are equals. And I do think that if Henry in that moment had said like, oh my gosh, you're absolutely right. Um, you are this remarkable person. You can stand on your own. Instead, he takes credit for it. But if he had done the thing she wanted, I think she would have gone back with him right then and there. And so why she goes back after... Uh, I don't know. And, but maybe in it feeling unfinished, like that's part of why my fair lady works is because you're still talking about it afterwards. Um, it's not a neat little ending where it, it really is talking about a very real human relationship. That's messy and complicated. Taking a step back from that and kind of looking at something a little bit that comes into focus in the end, and I think you're right there, but is also more of an overarching 
issue isn't necessarily the right word, but pervasive sentiment is, I mean, okay, so My Fair Lady is set in Edwardian England, and there is this sense of prim and proper, but there is definitely still this kind of underlying sense of classism and misogyny that really pervades this show as a whole. Yes, and, and I do think that this the story is about, in a way, uh, the differences. I mean, Henry Hingen sings two songs about how um, women are inferior to men or how men are superior. So I think that it is about those differences in how the genders are, um, how they connect to each other and how they're seen in the world and about class. Uh, I think that this musical, it, it doesn't exist without those ideas. Like both Henry Higgins and Eliza are pushing against the class that they are in, that they they both find themselves in. And then Eliza in particular has a much, like her journey is, a, is through that class where she starts out lower class, but she's independent. You know, she is, she, she has her own apartment. She's selling flowers and she goes to Higgins for elocution lessons so she can get a job, uh, essentially a retail job uh, in becoming a, a florist assistant. And what she finds is by being elevated and sort of quote unquote being tricking everybody into thinking she's this highborn lady, she discovers that she now feels useless, that the only thing she's good for is marriage. Um, and so she has lost an independence that she had when she was of a lower class where Henry is firmly in this sort of upper class, but rejects all of the rules while still benefiting from the 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 privilege that it gives him and so he's sort of stuck because he's not happy where he is either otherwise he wouldn't be firmly rejecting he himself is allowed to push against all these rules he's rude to his mom he goes to the ascot and he is rude to everybody he doesn't show up wearing the right clothes um so he's stuck Eliza wants mobility but finds herself stuck. I don't know. That was a very long-winded way of saying like I you cannot remove the the clash of gender and class from this musical. And I think tying this back to the ending is one of the things that frustrates me about the ending mm -hmm. is there is this idea of classism and misogyny. However, we do get to see Eliza's kind of burgeoning agency mm -hmm. where she starts out as this quote unquote low class flower seller, but she takes the initiative. She takes the, the, the desire to go to Henry for these elocution lessons, not necessarily to become more of a quote-unquote highborn lady mm -hmm. that that henry wants her to be but it's to improve herself to improve her standing so that she can get that better job so that she can become maybe a little bit more comfortable in her own like life circle mm -hmm. and we see this building and it, it's interesting even when we get to act two so we've now gone through the horse race with with mixed success. I mean, yeah. she does start to pass her off herself off as a quote-unquote proper lady, but then she has that moment of kind of unbridled joy where yes. she reverts to her type. Yep. Um, and then we get to the embassy ball where, I mean, she passes herself off so well that the royalty of Transylvania wants to be associated with her. So, 
you know, in a way it's Henry Higgins job well done, but that then takes us into the beginning of act two where Pickering and, and Henry are so busy patting themselves on the back that they fail to recognize this is as much Eliza's triumph as well. And so we see, again, that next step in her taking her own agency. She didn't pass herself off as a proper lady at these two events. She learned, she grew as a person, she grew in her own, you know, persona. It's not a matter of passing herself off as a highborn lady, but the fact that she had a task she decided on the method she was going to attack this task and she was in fact successful mm -hmm. that's what leads her to kind of you know pushing away from uh henry and and leaving because she now has this agency and she has this success whether it's acknowledged by anyone else or not but then that ties back into the like you said her feelings of unbelonging mm -hmm. you know she mm -hmm. can't she can't there that, that idea that you can never go home again yeah yeah and you know it becomes like i said that's what becomes frustrating for me is we never get this sense that she necessarily even feels she belongs with henry mm -hmm. whether in it's in a platonic or a romantic or you know a business-like aspect she returns but we never get to see that final step in her agency. Yeah. And it, as an actor, I think most of the time when I'm watching musicals or uh, plays of any kind or we're talking about them, I'm always like, okay, well, if I were the, if I were the actor in this role, like what am I thinking? And I do think that Eliza mentions, and it's something he throws back in her face right towards the end, but she mentions like, you know what? I'm going to do what you did. I'm going to give elocution lessons. Um, and I do think that ugh, I have so many thoughts. I love this musical. Just want everyone out there in podcast land to know that. Um, what makes her victory at the embassy ball so fascinating is that we don't actually hear her talking at all. It's one of these moments where she's silent and she's silent in their celebration when they come back. And I think that she's able to walk away because she's already been independent. This isn't a story about a highborn lady who like gets some dirt under her fingernails and learns how to be tough. This is a, a story about a tough lady who is dressed up and learns how to code switch essentially into this upper class and refuses to only be good enough for marriage refuses to lose her independence all of that is to say like so as the actor i'm thinking like well you know there is a small part of me that maybe if i'm eliza i go back because henry lives in this space where he sort of helps he helps people like the nice way where i'm sure eliza will actually help people and henry higgins just sort of yells at them but someone who teaches elocution helps people to navigate the world around them. And as his greatest student, he, she, she belongs there with him to pass this along because they both do transcend class at the end. They both exist outside of it because they do understand that it's just a whole bunch of rules that, they convinced everybody that Eliza was highborn and it's like, no, she's not just like you said, like she worked really hard. She put her mind to it and that 
class distinctions are just a whole bunch of made-up rules. Did I just convince I think, myself that it's a good ending? It's very possible. <laughs> I'm I'm fully going to admit I'm still... I am still 100% on the fence. I do adore this show. Yeah. I think this is some of the best music mm-hmm. that Frederick Lowe has ever written. I, you know, I feel like as, as far as the lexicon of Lerner and Lowe goes, My Fair Lady is kind of the, the pinnacle of what they've done. Yeah. But I'm still on the fence on this ending. Like it just, I want one more, I want one more moment of a strong Eliza so that Henry can recognize it. Yeah. Or, you know, even, even more than that so that he can acknowledge it. Yes. You know, I, I feel like in a, in a very cynical reading and, and, and again, I admit this is a cynical reading <laughs> that final line of Eliza, where the devil are my slippers. It plays the type, but in a way it tries to strip eliza of some of this agency mm-hmm. you know this idea that she's still subservient to him um and you know you and i were talking before i mean let's be brutally honest henry higgins is a narcissistic sociopath yeah like he, yeah straight up i mean he's he's definitely a misogynist like which is which is very much the time and i think that he's just like a little extra misogynist right on top of that sort of baseline uh, again, he has two songs where he's like, women are trash and men are awesome. Why can't women be like men? Um, you know, and it, it almost becomes like misogyny is his love language, <laughs> which is actually horrible to think about. I mean, it, it really is. But it ties, I feel, into his attitude, his, his for lack of a better term, his sociopathy, where everyone is beneath him. And while he recognizes the need that he needs people, um, that doesn't necessarily mean they're on his level. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, Henry Higgins' dad probably did not hug him enough. And, like, his mom was probably cold and distant. Um, I mean, Oh, I'm sure he was sent to boarding school. (laughs) He saw his parents on the holidays, but only on the holidays where they decided not to go to Mallorca. Um... (laughs) We there were holidays his misogyny like <laughs> ultimately he no. was a grown man oh no <laughs> who was making his own agency and making his own determinations and i do think like you had mentioned before uh that that is actually why pickering is there because pickering is a really interesting foil because he too is a linguist um he too is of the upper class and he pickering serves as a foil to show us the audience how men of this uh, class should be treating everybody. He's very kind. He's very genteel. Um, he is very caring. And I, and he's the one who ultimately leaves as well. He, um, he pushes back and says, you've really gone too far. Like you, you treated, you worked her to the bone and you're treating her like trash. Um, and so I think that that is important that we see that uh, what, what I'm saying is that like there, even Alan, uh, Alan J. Lerner and Lowe, I like that I said Alan J. Lerner and Lowe, um, <laughs> <laughs> that you see Lerner and Lowe are very aware that Henry Higgins is not a, he is both a product of his time and he is a choice. Like he is a product of his own choices because Pickering 
has that like genteel misogyny where it's more about chivalry where he's more condescending to women because they are tender, sweet creatures who must be taken care of. As, it, as, as, as They ultimately end up as two sides of the same coin yes. in that regard. Yep. That, you know, Henry feels that Eliza and, well, everyone are less than him because of his inherent narcissism and his attitude. Whereas Pickering feels that probably Eliza is less than him because that's what society has told him. Yeah. But ultimately the two have the same attitude that Eliza is less than. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Although I will say like at the end, you said like you wanted a moment where Henry, I feel like I'm trying to convince you that the end works and I promise I won't. Um, But Henry even acknowledges he's like, ah, look what I've made. I've made a woman like, look at you. You're amazing. You're remarkable. It's just not in the way he should have done it. Like he shouldn't have taken credit for her hard work. Ultimately, I it's what am I? I think that if Alan, I keep wanting to call him Alan J. Lerner and then just Lowe, like he's like Cher. Um, ultimately, <laughs> I think Lerner and Lowe, if they existed now and they were a little more woke, um, we would have gotten and they still decided they're like, this is based on Pygmalion, but we really want them to end up together in the end in whatever way that there would be that moment that felt more sincere. Um, it, it, now it makes me think like it's called My Fair Lady, but ultimately this musical really is about Henry Higgins. This really is about him being really sure of himself and then his whole world being rocked when someone says, nope, you're actually not, you're not the bee's knees. And he walks away realizing he's lost someone that he, who has really become a part of his life and he is really he's really hurt by that loss. That's fair. Let's actually open this up a little bit more. I actually want to focus a little bit on the role of Henry, mm. but also how it ties into the, the original cast actor of Rex Harrison. As, as we were talking about before, the role of Henry Higgins was written basically for Rex Harrison, who was self-confessed, at least in his mind, as not a singer, Um, I would argue that a bit considering how many musicals and movie musicals he did over the uh, the course of his career. But it actually lends itself to a fascinating kind of juxtaposition of the actor influencing the development of the character. Is that something you would agree with? Oh, absolutely. Um, So I know you know this, but for those in podcast land, uh, a pretty much agreed upon rule in musicals is that people sing because they can no longer talk that whatever is going on for them emotionally has is gotten so big that they now have to sing about it rather than speak it um and that so when you see someone singing in a musical when they're singing a love song it, they don't just love someone they love somebody um And so you have Rex Harrison, who is considers himself not a singer. And you have a character, Henry Higgins, who is emotionally stunted, who um, can't be vulnerable to other with other people because he's really closed off because he is narcissistic. The thing that's really particular about that is how 
perfect Rex Harrison is for this role then because he doesn't consider himself a singer. So most of the time he's not trying to sing. I think that throughout the musical, there are times when he will a little bit, but for the most part, he's singing. And it's because for the most part, what Henry Higgins has to say is bullshit. Pardon my language is bullcrap. Um, he is not really uh, exposing himself or being vulnerable or expressing anything um, that can't be contained the way that almost everybody else in the musical is when they're singing. And so when you get to the end, though, and he's he gets to I've grown accustomed to your face, what's really beautiful about Rex Harrison's uh, fashioning of the role is that that is a moment where he does try to sing. Now, I don't know if it's I, I can't go back in time and figure out if that's that was intentional or not. I think it was. I do think that there was a little there was intention behind that. And he he goes back and forth between speak singing and really trying to sing. And it's this idea that Eliza has taught him to sing like that is something that she's given to him. It's OK. So so that's how I view uh, Henry Higgins his path through the musical and how Rex Harrison influenced that. What's interesting to me to think about is I'm thinking specifically about the 2018 recording and how I personally think that the actor uh, sings where he shouldn't and doesn't sing where he should. And that can be really challenging when you have a role that is so intertwined the way this one is where like with Rex Harrison and Henry Higgins uh and how how challenging it must be as a performer to not essentially copy the performance of the original actor but to really understand the the reasoning for why Rex Harrison was cast how he influenced the character in rehearsals and in previews in what was and wasn't like how things were written for him. And ultimately I think you do need to be true to that. And a reason I think a, one of the reasons I think the 2018 version wasn't as successful is because that actor is singing more than he should. And again, in I've grown accustomed to her face, he, he actually speaks a lot of the things he should be singing and it's an emotional letdown um people may not be able to like the lay person watching a musical may not be able to articulate all of this in fact they won't they won't be able to articulate it but they know it they know it intrinsically and it's again i just can't imagine the challenge of being an actor <laughs> And again, trying to not copy a performance, but you have to honor it, particularly this character, like Henry Higgins, very specifically, you have to honor that Rex Harrison originated this role, that this role was written to be spoken more than it was to be sung. And you have to be very, very specific about the times when you do choose to sing. Well, I think, you know, approaching it more as a music director, I 100% agree with you. And I think after a while, it becomes a little bit less of copying another performance as it becomes kind of this concept of performance practice mm -hmm. where, you know, and we see it even as far back as a lot of Rodgers and Hammerstein shows where certain conventions are observed that may or may not necessarily be what's on the page, but 
they've become so iconic with the role or with the song that transcends necessarily an actor's choice. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think when you look at the original Broadway cast and when you look at the movie cast, because with a, with a one glaring change, Mm -hmm. they're basically the same cast Mm -hmm. that, and you know going back to the i've grown accustomed to her face i feel like there are very definite choices made there i don't feel like it's necessarily rex harrison saying i really can't sing this i can't really sing that so i'll speak that and i'll I'll sing this here because it's a little bit easier ultimately i feel like it was much more of a conscious choice about and I, i i think feeding into what you're saying about you know when i can no longer talk i have to sing a lot of those choices make sense to me in that vein absolutely which ultimately makes it more performance practice as it does emulating or copying a rex harrison performance absolutely absolutely i I think i think the perfect example of that is right in i've grown accustomed to your face is the line he says i'm very grateful she's a woman and so easy to forget rather like a habit one can always break which like that is a burn um so he says that rather like a habit one can always break and yet it's just perfect and i cry every single time because it is tender it is vulnerable and so i i completely agree with you that i think that i've grown accustomed to her face was probably really heavily structured um to say this is when you're going to speak and this is when you're going to sing and that's what makes that number uh, it's just so beautiful and Rex Harrison is a mess of a person. Like, talk about problematic misogynists. Um, there, I read so many anecdotes about the previews of My Fair Lady where he was just so rude to Julie Andrews, who was like 20 at the time. <laughs> like, so rude to her. And he performs that song so well. It breaks my heart every single time. Every single time. Okay, so I think that's going to, I think that's actually a great place to kind of put a pin in this because I know you and I could probably talk for hours about this show. I think we already have technically. Uh, We did, you know, with our pre-recording. No, that's, that's very fair. So... If you want to find out more about My Fair Lady, there are several excellent recordings out there. There's the 1956 recording with uh, Rex Harrison as Henry Higgins and Julie Andrews as Eliza Doolittle. There is the movie soundtrack, which is slightly less iconic in my mind, only because of the horrible glaring omission of Julie Andrews. Um, no, No knock against her replacement, but... It's, you know, it's hard following in those shoes. Um, there is the 2018 yep, recording. 2018 recording. And so any of those recordings are going to be good for you to check out for this show. Well, that should just about do it for this episode. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can drop us a line at musicalminutespodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook at Musical Minutes with John and John or on Twitter at Musical Mins Pod. That's Musical M-I-N-S Pod. Intro and outro music, Bebop 25, is provided under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License. 
by Jason Shaw on audionautics.com. Thank you for joining us. I'm John. And I'm John. And we'll see you next time.